Section 10 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2 Scotland, Exile, and Restoration, Part 3. It is only fair to the memory of Charles, laden as it is with the burden of so much ingratitude, to remember that even after the nine years of exile which were to follow, he showed to every one of those who had helped him, from the beautiful mistress Jane Lane, to the yeoman Penderels, a full sense of his debt. It was always so with him. Labor and sacrifices in his service, as ruler of his country, counted for nothing. But strictly personal acts of kindness or fidelity were remembered and generally repaid. It will surprise many to know that there are families now in England who still enjoy the benefits of the devotion shown by those most instrumental in the escape. Some fifteen years after the Restoration there were granted, in addition to all former gifts, by letters patent, dated July 24, 1675, a series of perpetual pensions descendable forever to the heirs of the grantees, one hundred pounds a year each to Richard and William Penderell, one hundred marks each to Humphrey, John, and George Penderell, and fifty pounds to Elizabeth Yates, daughter of old William Penderell of Boscobel, and his wife Joan. A large number of fee-farm rents and charges and tithes in half a dozen counties were assigned to trustees for the service of these pensions, the whole of which are still received by the descendants of those who originally enjoyed them. Several of the Penderells held offices about the court, and Humphrey's grandson Richard, who became the Sardinian Marquis Penderell de Boscobel, was the godson of Charles's wife. The entire family, moreover, was exempted by order and council from the penal laws against the Catholics, and protected in the days of the Popish terror, as were the other members of the Catholic faith who had aided the king. On October 16th, Charles and Wilmot set foot upon French soil at Fécon. So deplorable was their condition that they narrowly escaped being detained as vagrants. While at Rouen, the people of the inn carefully examined their rooms before they left to see that nothing had been purloined. They appear to have reached Paris in little better condition, for to German Charles owed his first clean shirt for some weeks the first indeed since Huddleston had given him a New Holland shirt of his own at Moseley Hall. For six months Charles lived upon the charity of Duretz and other friends, and almost literally on the crumbs from his mother's table. When at last a small monthly grant from the French court relieved the pressure, Henrietta insisted that he must henceforth bear half the charges of the evening meal, since she had, she said, enough to do to feed herself and her youngest daughter. So businesslike indeed was she that the arrangement was retrospective, and the very first night's supper which the king ate with the queen began the account, so that the first money that was received for the king upon his grant was entirely stopped for the discharge of his majesty's part. His brother James was fairly provided for by his colonelcy in the French army and a small pension from the court. Barely clothed and fed, Charles was in forlorn plight, 
it was noticed that his high spirits had left him and that he had become silent in company but his privations formed the height of luxurious living when compared with those of his servants i have not been master of a crown these many months said hyde am cold for want of clothes and fire and owe for all the meat i have eaten these three months i am so cold he writes again i can scarce hold my pen and have not three sous to buy a faggot the destitution deepened as time went on five or six of us eat together one meal a day for a pistole a week and the king himself owes for all he hath eaten since april in march sixteen fifty four hyde had not received a shilling from the king for more than three years and was wasted to nothing in april he wanted shoes and shirts but he says with thankfulness i do not know that any man is yet dead for want of bread which really i wonder at no possible source of help was left untried the death of his brother-in-law the prince of orange had closed the only purse upon which he could reckon but we cast many a false dice to win the game wrote one of his court it was intimated to the pope that the king was ready to change his religion if it were made worth his while in that he would in any case protect the english and irish catholics when restored if some help were forthcoming he was met by the suggestion that his conversion should be declared first and the negotiation as later in sixteen fifty five naturally lapsed in sixteen fifty two he sent wilmot created earl of rochester for the purpose to the diet of ratisbon to solicit the aid of the german princes who were beyond the fear of Cromwell. Wilmot, though he was frequently drunk and abusive in public, and generally disgraced his master, succeeded in obtaining a vote for two hundred thousand rix dollars, a very little of which came to hand, and from the electors of Treb and Cologne small sums were received. But Charles had practically to depend upon the contributions of royalists in England, and his signature was appended to many a document which bore the following i do acknowledge to have received the sum of one hundred pounds sterling which i do promise to repay as soon as i am able he had another possible resource his mother saw to it that the courtship of the grand mademoiselle should be taken up once more his chances were better than before in spite of the cropping of his rich black curling hair of a coarsening of the features and a recklessness of expression the lady found him much improved and he had about him the halo of the dangers he had passed he roused her pity by his description of his existence in scotland where there was not a woman fit to be seen and where it was a sin to play the fiddle most important of all he had somehow learnt to speak french since they last met and was able to assure her in a civilized tongue that he could not regret his defeat at worcester since it brought him back to her that he cared to regain his kingdom now only that he might share it with her in fact il faisait toutes les mines que l'on dit que les amants font but at this moment the possibility of a greater alliance with her cousin louis the fourteenth floated before her she revolted against the incessant attack kept up by henrietta and by the two princesses of orange 
who had been brought to Paris for the purpose, and the farce came once more to the only end which Mazarin would have allowed. In other matters Charles followed Hyde's advice. He dismissed that father of atheists, Mr. Hobbes, who hath made all the Queen's court and part of the Duke of York's atheists, and would have done his best to have poisoned the King's court. He now needed little dissuasion from any longer counterfeiting the presbyter, and in spite of the urgency of Buckingham and all the Presbyterian gang, gave up attendance at the Huguenot services at Charenton with alacrity. Indeed, Hyde's anxiety was soon roused in the opposite direction, for C.S. and his fraternity went to pass away the afternoon at the Jesuits of St. Anthony. The king's assertion of independence caused his relations with his mother, which were never cordial, to become very strained. Necessity, however, compelled them to stay together in Paris until July 1652. In that month, the capital was in the hands of Condé and Orléans, a prey to fire and massacre, and Charles and Henrietta were allowed to go to Saint-Germain, whence in October they accompanied Louis the Fourteenth on his triumphal return. During the whole of this year the king had been busy with feudal schemes. When war broke out between the states and the commonwealth, he applied to be allowed to serve in the Dutch fleet. He tried to arrange a marriage between James and the daughter of the Duke of Lorraine, who had an army to dispose of. He proposed to visit the Emperor of Russia and the princes of the empire, who might give money, to mediate between France and Spain, and so secure the help of both. In June he commissioned Middleton to command the royalist Scotch nobles and chiefs who were expected to rise in the north. Meanwhile, Hyde, with Ormond, Nicholas, and Hatton, were bent upon getting Charles out of the power of the juggling cardinal. They were haunted by the fear that for his own ends Mazarin would deliver him to Cromwell. So long as the issue of the war between England and the States was doubtful, Mazarin kept him carefully in sight by the simple process of curtailing supplies. But by August 1653, England was absolute mistress of the sea, and it became advisable to conciliate the Commonwealth. An obvious step was to withdraw all protection from Charles, and in January 1654, Cromwell was informed that if he would ally himself with France, the king should be dismissed. This crown rode Hyde in February, longs to be rid of us, that it may proceed briskly in their treaty with Cromwell. So the king hath sent them word that he will be gone within ten days after they have paid the money which they have promised. But Charles had to solace himself with billiards and tennis, visits to the Jesuits, and facile amours until July, when the political situation was clear. His destination was easily settled. The states were closed to him by the treaty with England of April 1654. The kings of France and Spain take it for a principle that the king's interest is none of theirs, and each counts Cromwell for a no nocheat. Germany, however, was open, and on condition that Charles went there, Mazarin found the necessary funds. He left Paris on July 8th, and after a month's stay at Spa with his widowed sister, an excellent princess, if she had not the natural imperfection of her family, 
an unwillingness to put herself to think of business, passed on to Aix-la-Chapelle, where he spent another month, and thence in November to Cologne, receiving an exuberant welcome. Ormond, the ornament of the court, and Nicholas, now appointed secretary, remained in attendance, while Hyde, free of immediate business, took up his residence at Breda. The rivalry between the Queen's friends and the triumvirate who represented his father's old servants, Hyde, Ormond, and Nicholas, had been settled in dramatic fashion before Charles left France. Hyde, as most in his confidence, was the mark of every attack. An impudent accusation of holding communication with Cromwell, supported with detail of time and place, brought matters to a head. Hyde at once challenged an investigation before the king to the utter discomfiture of the conspirators. It pleased his majesty to declare that he never heard so frivolous an accusation in his life, and wondered that such trash should ever come from such persons. So absolutely did this confirm Hyde's position, that his friends laughingly declared that he must have hired his assailants to bring their charge. To Hyde, earnest, hard-working, and of unimpeachable morals, Charles's character began to give no little uneasiness. The natural imperfection of his family was more pronounced in him than in any of the others. I do not forget the letters the king should write, but he never sets himself to that work but on Fridays, and he elsewhere adds by no means always then. Whenever anything is to be done by the king's own hand, we must sometimes be content to wait, he being brought very unwillingly to the work, which vexes me exceedingly. Nicholas again emphasized his shrewd perception of character, but lamented that so excellent an understanding and judgment in affairs should be combined with such luxury and neglect of business and so little secrecy. Hyde did not confine his feelings to letters to his friends. He lectured Charles, now as he had lectured him at Bristol and Jersey, pressing upon him that it was his majesty's misfortune to be thought by many not to be active enough toward his own redemption, and to love his ease too much, both for his age and fortune. The fact that he held a far higher opinion of James, a most glorious young prince, who was in honorable service under Turenne, did not, however, cause Hyde to swerve from his loyal reserve and invariable practice. When all is done, we have lamented and advised as we ought to do, we must to others make the best of it, and put all the fair glosses and interpretations of innocent mirth upon it. In the term innocent mirth, we must, we fear, include drink and the incontinence which was already a scandal. Poor as was his court, wine and women were easily come by. As regards drinking, he kept at this time within bounds. It is especially noted that on a hunting expedition, he and Tom Elliot, his gentleman of the bedchamber, were the only two who returned sober. But the graver vice was notorious. Elsewhere we read of his seventeenth mistress abroad, while Hyde himself had been employed by the Queen, for the removal of a young lady out of the Louvre, who had procured a lodging there without Her Majesty's consent. A most amusing anecdote related at first hand by Saint-Evremont shows that even during the perils of the flight after Worcester, 
Charles had not been able to refrain from indulging his passions. The tuition of Mrs. Windham, carried out by Percy, and especially by Buckingham, the most worthless of a worthless crew, had borne ample fruit. End of section 10